Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, August 11th, 2023, the 933rd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So here we are on Friday and we still do not have a new Trump indictment. And I have to say, I'm pretty disappointed with that fact. Nothing is more fun than a Trump indictment. And at this point, we've come to expect them so often that maybe we've just become a little bit spoiled. I'm feeling a little entitled to new Trump indictments. And I know it's not something I can control. I just have to let it go for this week. 
Now, sure, the two-tiered system of justice is absolutely on full display and becoming more obvious to everyone as we go through this process. And of course, that is the exact point. That is what we want our fellow Americans to see. That is why we're going through all of this nonsense in the first place. Everyone has to understand what has become of this country and what the regime currently in charge, or at least ostensibly in charge, is capable of. On one side, we have a group of people who cannot be punished, cannot be held accountable for anything they do, no matter what crimes they commit. And on the other side, we have people being accused of crimes and punished for crimes that weren't crimes until the regime needed a reason to punish its political opponents up to and including the quote unquote former president. They basically get to decide what's a crime and who is guilty of it in an ad hoc fashion. And why do they even bother? Why don't they just snatch people off the street and imprison them? Well, the obvious answer is because then everyone would realize what they're doing. And this is just another one of those examples where it becomes very clear that what the regime must do at all times is keep the people believing that everything is how they've been told. They need the people's consent to go forward. If they didn't, if they just wanted to overpower everything and everyone, if they had that kind of strength, if they had those kinds of numbers, then they wouldn't need the optics. But the society wouldn't function that way. And so they keep up this illusion where there is a certain set of rules that they are going to apply equally to everyone. You are expected not to break those rules. If you break those rules, you run the risk of having your freedom stripped from you. And generally speaking, that works. But it turns out that there are actually people who present a threat to the regime and to their grip on power who also don't break any of those rules as they are stated, as they are laid out. And if the regime doesn't have any way to punish these people, then they can continue to threaten the regime's power. And that is why they persecute the people. And that is why they are persecuting Donald Trump. They don't care about enforcing the rules. They don't even really care about imprisoning Trump. They just want Donald Trump and all his supporters to stop threatening their grip on power and to stop exposing what this system really is. They tried incentives, they tried coercion, they've tried censorship, and none of that has worked. So now they are using the law and the threat of imprisonment in hopes that this problem will finally go away. Now, before we get into the details of the coming indictment and the newest developments in the Get Trump effort, let's take a second and think about how the legal system is operating in pursuit of Donald Trump. In just the last few months, we have had five different legal issues for Donald Trump. We have the E. Jean Carroll case that is still ongoing through appeals processes and more claims of defamation from both sides. But you'll remember that the E. Jean Carroll case only came about after they had changed laws, making it possible to file civil suits for sexual assault and sexual harassment claims where the statute of limitations had already expired. They created a special temporary window where anyone who had one of those sorts of claims could take the accused to court, no matter how long ago the alleged incident happened. Then we had the Alvin Bragg issue about the payments to Stormy Daniels. 
And in that case, we were told that Alvin Bragg was trying out a novel legal theory. He basically claims that the Trump organization kept false records and that those records were intentionally falsified to cover up a campaign finance violation that even the Federal Elections Commission had said was not a campaign finance violation. Then you have the Jack Smith documents case that ignores the Presidential Records Act completely and pursues Donald Trump for taking too long to hand over his own personal property to the National Archives on the basis that these documents he has kept are somehow relevant to national security, even though they are not classified. Donald Trump had the power, the plenary power, as the authority in our government on classification to declassify all of them simply by deciding to. And then he can take his presidential records with him. But nonetheless, we were told Donald Trump is committing espionage and they are pursuing him through the Espionage Act because it is claimed that Donald Trump took out his classified documents and was just waving them around at Mar-a-Lago trying to prove to people that he had indeed been the president. Like, look at my classified documents. Look at my classified documents. There is so far no indication whatsoever that Donald Trump transferred those classified documents that are not classified, the national security documents to a foreign power or that he sold them to a foreign power. He has not committed espionage in any way, but they had to get him on something. So they ignored the Presidential Records Act and they're going after him for espionage claiming that he failed to care for these very important national security documents that are also his personal property and declassified. Then we had the most recent Trump indictment where Jack Smith essentially took up the referrals of the improperly formed sham January 6th committee. Trump stands accused of conspiring to defraud the federal government, obstructing an official proceeding and conspiring to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate any person in the free exercise or enjoyment of any right or privilege secured to him by the Constitution or the laws of the United States. Now, all of these things for which Trump stands accused are things that can easily be applied in the other direction later on. Now, many times over the last couple of years, we have talked about RICO statutes and racketeering. We're going to get into some of that later with what's being discussed in Georgia by Fonnie Willis. But the point is that none of this in normal times would ever be prosecuted, certainly not against a former president. And Donald Trump often mentions, I think it's true, that if he dropped out, if he simply left politics, if he just gave up on the entire Make America Great Again movement, they would stop pursuing him. They would probably drop all the charges and let Trump just go on with his life playing golf down in Mar-a-Lago. This is not the pursuit of justice. This is an attempt to maintain their grip on power. This week on Truth Social, Donald Trump posted, remember, these indictments aren't, quote unquote, legit. They were all thrown up at me quickly and haphazardly, including the local ones by my political opponent, Crooked Joe Biden. It's not like the state or country is coming down on me. It's a dishonest politician and his gang of thugs breaking the law in order to get reelected. There should be outrage at this, a new low in American politics, election interference. The good news is that the people get it, and so does the fake news. 
And it's kind of interesting that Donald Trump seems to be changing his position on the fake news. Somehow the fake news gets it. Very interesting indeed. And once again, he says that the indictments themselves are fake. This time he says they aren't quote unquote legit. And you can take it figuratively. You can absolutely take it figuratively. And the way he's writing suggests that it should be taken figuratively. But if you take it literally, then he's saying these are not real indictments. And he's done that multiple times now. At some point, you might have to think that he's saying the literal truth in a way that provides some narrative cover for not having to make that statement directly and killing the whole narrative effect. It is very interesting for us, though. Most people do not try to take Donald Trump seriously. They do not think about the meaning of his words. They believe he speaks carelessly and recklessly and does not think about his own words. So why should we? But we've done this for long enough to know that that simply does not make sense and does not add up. It does not reflect reality. Now, the narrative on all of these charges is that they are election interference. And of course, they are to the extent that we are in an election period. And we certainly will be throughout the next 15 months. As all of these court cases progress, this all under the assumption that we will be having an election in November of next year. There is currently no reason to believe otherwise beyond speculation and rumor and some statements here and there. Douglas McGregor himself on a podcast this week talked about how we may have an election sooner, which is a new and interesting wrinkle. Now, is he giving us inside info? Well, there's no reason to assume that, but it is an interesting thought and worth keeping in the back of our minds as new events occur. But as for election interference under the idea that everything will be as normal next year, the regime naturally is looking to get the most out of these indictments. Will they settle for interfering in the general election, causing Trump to lose in the general? Absolutely. But why not prevent that if you can? Why not interfere fully in the primary process in hopes of getting Donald Trump knocked out of the process early? Maybe get Ron DeSantis in there or someone like Glenn Youngkin or maybe Chris Christie. Who knows how far down they will go to get a non-Trump replacement. So in order to interfere properly in the primary process, you would have to get some of this really going before that primary. And that is exactly what they're pursuing. Yesterday, it was announced that the special counsel, Jack Smith, is looking to begin the trial on the Donald Trump January 6th slash election fraud related charges on January 2nd, 2024. So that'll be quite an interesting happy new year. Everyone wakes up on January 1st, totally hungover, makes it through the day watching college football, and then we immediately get the Donald Trump trial. That'll be quite a way to begin an election year. Politico wrote in an article yesterday, special counsel Jack Smith is seeking to put Donald Trump on trial on January 2nd, 2024, less than five months away on charges related to his bid to subvert the 2020 election. And that is kind of a spectacular claim, considering that this is attempting to subvert the 2024 election. That aggressive timeline would put the weighty criminal trial first on Trump's crowded calendar of criminal proceedings and guarantee an extensive airing of the grave allegations against him just before Republican primary voters head to the polls. 
Prosecutors say the abbreviated timeline is rooted in the extraordinary public interest in seeing this case resolved. Prosecutors say they're prepared to deliver a large amount of evidence to Trump's team within days and have gone to great lengths to organize it in a way that will simplify the defense's ability to review it and prepare for trial. Among the evidence they say they are ready to deliver as soon as U.S. District Court Judge Tanya Chutkin enters a protective order to govern the handling of the evidence are grand jury transcripts, witness interviews, and evidence obtained through, quote, numerous sealed search warrants. Trump's legal team is expected to file its own proposed trial timeline next week, but has already forecast a starkly different view of the case. Trump's attorney, John Loro, has predicted it could take years to review and organize evidence well past the 2024 election in which Trump is favored to be the Republican nominee. So the idea here is that they want to get this thing going before Super Tuesday. The Daily Beast comes right out and says it directly. They report that the special counsel's office believes the trial will take no longer than four to six weeks. So it would be wrapped up in advance of that March Tuesday when the first big primaries happen. And that would be the point at which Donald Trump having a massive win would basically lock things up. He would be even more of a prohibitive favorite to win the nomination than he is right now. They are hoping to scuttle all that by convincing the voters that Donald Trump is actually a terrible criminal, too dangerous to ever put in charge of the country again, or perhaps even by convicting him and telling Republican primary voters that if they want to vote for Trump, they're going to have to go out and vote for a convicted criminal. And of course, there will be a massive effort by the uniparty left and right. The establishment, the wannabe elites will be hit with all the shame about voting for a convicted criminal by people who voted for Joe Biden, a man who was literally mentored by a Klansman in politics for decades, who has sold his political office, and the interests of his constituents throughout his five-decade career in politics, and who is regularly seen sniffing and fondling children. They want to put that label on Donald Trump as fast as they can, as early as they can, and then push all that pressure onto voters to have to support that and support it publicly, to be willing to say, yes, I am going to go out and vote for that convicted criminal if you choose to go that route. Now, a lot of people worry about the outcomes of these things, but if you think about what the message will be when the American public goes out and supports Donald Trump, despite his status as a convicted criminal, that would really be a profound statement about the understanding of political persecution in this country. Donald Trump at that point will be a martyr in the eyes of the public and a hero to countless people who do not already see him that way. So Jack Smith and his team believe that they have prepared all of this evidence in a very organized fashion. They're going to hand it over. It's going to be a streamlined process. That means that Trump's defense team can get through all of it really quickly. They won't need anything more than what Jack Smith's team is already turning over. Let's just have all parties agree that this is the evidence, the only evidence. There's no more evidence than this. So let's just get the whole thing started. And I imagine that we will probably actually see this scenario play out on the terms of the special counsel, which will read to the public as a furthering of the injustice. 
The stories will be about how Donald Trump's team did not have time to prepare for the trial. And to the extent that all of that as it plays out will be real, that is absolutely a valid point to make. It is an injustice in itself that the government is so consumed with putting away a political opponent that they are not allowing the accused to present their best possible defense. The government should not have a stake in imprisoning its citizens for charges they can't prove without stifling the defense's ability to properly defend the accused. Naturally, Trump's team wants more time to gather evidence and make use of the fact that these charges in themselves have opened the government up to discovery. There's a lot of information there that has not only been hidden from Donald Trump, but hidden from the public. And through this process, both Trump and the public should be able to get all of that information. We've also heard the phrase speedy trial many times over the last couple of weeks as the discussion about when Trump will appear continues. But the guarantee of a speedy trial is supposed to be for the defendant. And it's not being applied in the instance, obviously, of many of the J6 prisoners. But it's not for the government to be able to have trials as quickly as possible and not allow the defense proper time to assess the evidence that could help defendants clear their names. In every instance, we continue to see a complete and total reversal of justice and a reversal of how we were told the system operates, how we were told the system is supposed to operate. We are told our system provides the most possible justice, and we are learning that it actually does the exact opposite under the conditions we see right now. This morning, a headline in NBC News, Trump lawyers to face off with Jack Smith's prosecutors over discovery rules. Lawyers for Donald Trump and federal prosecutors will appear in a federal courtroom Friday morning to discuss what restrictions could be imposed before a trial on charges related to the 2020 election, including limits on what information the former president can share about the case. The hearing Friday will center on a protective order requested by prosecutors that would set rules about what information Trump or his attorneys could share publicly before the government turns over discovery materials. You'll remember on Monday, Donald Trump got in big, big trouble by the news for saying that if you go after him, he's going to come after you. They are pretending that that is some kind of threat and using that as a basis to say that Donald Trump cannot be allowed to say anything about this case in public. They know that once they start transferring information to Donald Trump's defense team, once Trump knows this information, he's going to want to talk about it. They don't want the public to know what actually happened with the election and with the very violent insurrection. But that, of course, is where all the good stuff is. Donald Trump this week said, so now that I have full subpoena power because of the freedom of speech, sham indictment by crooked Joe Biden, deranged Jack Smith and the DOJ, it has just been reported that the unselect January 6th Committee of Political Hacks and Thugs has illegally destroyed their records and documents. This is unthinkable, and the fake political indictment against me must be immediately withdrawn. The system is rigged and corrupt, very much like the presidential election of 2020. We are a nation in decline. And what is Trump talking about? Well, on Tuesday, it was reported that some of the January 6th committee's documents and records had simply vanished. The headline in Fox News, J6 committee failed to preserve records, has no data 
on Capitol Hill security failures, GOP charges. The House Select Committee that investigated the Capitol riot on January 6, 2021, failed to adequately preserve documents, data and video depositions, including communications it had with the Biden White House that are still missing, according to the Republican lawmaker overseeing the GOP investigation into the committee's work. The now disbanded J6 committee, which was run by Democrats and included only two GOP members, has also failed to provide any evidence that it looked into Capitol Hill security failures on the day of the riot. Representative Barry Loudermilk from Georgia, chairman of the subcommittee on oversight for the Committee on House Administration, told Fox News Digital. Loudermilk said he and his staff had difficulty gathering all the information it needs to investigate Representative Benny Thompson's handling of the J6 investigation. Part of our task at this oversight subcommittee is to actually address the security failures. Look into how did it happen? How were these folks able to get into the Capitol? Loudermilk said the documents they obtained came over in boxes and were completely unorganized. Nothing was indexed. There was no table of contents index. Usually when you conduct this level of investigation, you use a database system and everything is digitized, indexed. We got nothing like that. We just got raw data. So it took us a long time going through it. And one thing I started realizing is we don't have anything much at all from the blue team. The blue team, as described by Loudermilk, represents the group within the J6 committee that was directed to investigate security failures at the Capitol. Loudermilk explained that the sources have told him the blue team was essentially shut down by the committee in order to focus on placing the blame on former President Trump. So what do we have? We have special counsel Jack Smith saying that they have put all of their evidence together in this beautiful package. It's all been streamlined. They're going to hand it over to Trump's defense team, and it shouldn't take them any time to go through all of the evidence. And it is all of the evidence. Trust us, all the evidence. They're just going to go through that nice and quick because we made it super, super easy for them. And then we will have a speedy trial so that we can convict Trump before Super Tuesday. But also there is all this other evidence that the January 6th committee turned up and you can't have any of it because that would be dangerous. And also we went ahead and deleted it. The storm has arrived 17 put together this little supercut and wrote now that the J6 unselect committee has been caught destroying their records. Let's see what they said in their own words about destroying evidence during their made for TV show trial of President Trump. Oh, the irony. These people are nothing but professional criminals. Here goes. Yeah. So the Secret Service has said, oh, yeah, big mistake. Oops, a daisy. Uh, we can't find them. Do you buy their explanation at all? Is it for sale? Isn't it a little odd that all of the text would banish for January 6th and January 5th? You know, of, of all the days, what an odd coincidence that is. When this first came to light, when the Inspector General of the Department of Homeland Security first made us aware that these records may have disappeared, uh, I, I think was very misleading uh, in saying that no records relevant to our inquiry were destroyed. Uh, but acknowledging that records were destroyed. Well, if they were destroyed, how do they know they were not pertinent text messages? I will say this, in the very least, it is quite crazy that the Secret Service would actually end up deleting anything related to one of the more uh, infamous days in American history, particularly when it comes to uh, the role of the Secret Service. I do think, though, that it's concerning uh, that you have uh, text messages 
apparently, um, and, and this is based on the news reporting, but text messages apparently of some of the senior officials, uh, people like Cash Patel, uh, apparently um, not available. There's a requirement for federal agencies to maintain records. Um, an agency that was such a key part of a critical event in our history, um, one might assume they had done everything possible to preserve those records, to analyze them, to determine you know, what kind of things went right or went wrong that day in, in their practices and procedures. And you know we are looking into this. That's why we're subpoenaing them. We want to make sure that we understand the bottom line. Like, where are these text messages? Can they be recovered? And we've subpoenaed them because they're legal records that we need to see for the committee. I have to say that statement that we saw from the Secret Service, uh, that basically there were messages lost, but none of them pertain to what we're investigating. I don't know how, if they're lost, you can draw that conclusion with such confidence. I'll tell you this, that everybody who has tried to hide a fact and hide the truth from this committee has gotten his or her comeuppance because there are other people coming forward to tell the truth all the time. So the question is, do you believe in boomerangs? And if you think that we're always making it up, how incredible is it that they're describing the very problem we see now caused by them, apparently, and blaming Donald Trump for it. It's so astounding that it's hard to believe it wasn't set up like this. It is impossible to have the contrast be any starker than this. In full view of the American public on national television, on cable news, they are saying all of these things about how important it is to retain this evidence. Don't delete anything. They have the right to access all of this information. And here we are a year later, Donald Trump trying to defend himself. And the January 6th committee has somehow lost their documents and records. Now, I am of the mind that we should expect to see all of this reach whatever point it has to reach for the critical mass of Americans to wake up and understand what's going on. We're going to get these reruns over and over and over again until everyone learns the lesson. The lesson here is primarily about the two-tiered system of justice. And once we have a two-tiered system of justice, the things they are able to do to people who they have targeted are extraordinary. This is kind of an example similar to the principal Chuck Schumer expressed when he said to, I believe, Rachel Maddow, that if you mess with the intel community, they can nail you six ways from Sunday. They're essentially using every tool in the toolkit to go after Donald Trump. It's not that things are a little unfair. It's that the system, as we thought we knew it, has been turned on its head. This is from yesterday in Just the News. Jack Smith admits he included inaccurate info when asking judge to hide Trump Twitter warrant. Special counsel Jack Smith has admitted that his office included inaccurate information when requesting that a judge issue a non-disclosure order to prevent former President Donald Trump from learning his office had obtained a warrant for his Twitter account. Reports emerged on Thursday that Smith's team had secured a search warrant in January for materials related to Trump's account. In seeking a non-disclosure order to prevent the company from informing Trump, however, Smith's office inaccurately suggested Trump himself would have been a flight risk should he learn of the warrant. So the idea here is they can't allow Donald Trump to know that there has been a warrant on his Twitter account and information related to that account 
on the basis that if he found out, then he would become a flight risk. He would get on Trump Force One and what? Fly to Russia seeking asylum from Vladimir Putin. And I mentioned this on Twitter last week. It is awfully strange that Donald Trump is being pursued for all of these grave crimes against America and that he could face penalties up to and including the death penalty. But he is still just allowed to be around in public, fly around wherever he wants on his plane, give rally speeches, etc., rather than being held in custody. Is he really being prosecuted for these grave crimes against America? I mean, the guy's got a plane. Isn't he Vladimir Putin's best buddy? Wasn't he palling around with all these dictators? Don't they have armies and nuclear weapons? Couldn't they just take Donald Trump and give him asylum? He would flee and never face justice. Well, apparently that's not that big a concern. It's almost like some elements of this don't seem real. The district court also found reason to believe that the former president would, quote, flee from prosecution, reads a decision from the District of Columbia Court of Appeals that the Epoch Times reviewed. The government later acknowledged, however, that it had, quote, errantly included flight from prosecution as a predicate in its application for the nondisclosure order. U.S. District Judge Beryl Howe granted the warrant and the nondisclosure order. The appeals court ruling upheld his decision. Howell's original order is not public, though the appellate court indicated he felt there was reason to believe Trump's awareness of the warrant could undercut the investigation by allowing him to obstruct it. And of course, we have seen them accuse Donald Trump of obstruction countless times. They call his communications to the public obstruction of investigations. And now they are saying they don't have to inform him of a warrant because if they do, then the potential for obstruction arises and it could even be that Donald Trump is a flight risk. The revelation follows an unrelated admission from Smith that his team had incorrectly claimed that surveillance footage it included as evidence in the Trump classified documents case had been provided to defense counsel for review. The government's representation at the July 18th hearing that all surveillance footage the government had obtained pre-indictment had been produced was therefore incorrect. Prosecutors admitted in early August. One would think that all this abject malpractice would harm the prosecution, but hey, we're way past that. They hardly even pretend anymore. They just hope that no one will notice. Now let's shift gears and focus on the potential Georgia indictment coming from Fannie Willis or Fannie Willis. I truthfully don't know, and I hear it both ways often. And maybe I will just continue to express my confusion by saying it both ways. But back in May, May 19th of this year, the New York Times ran an article with this headline. Georgia prosecutor signals August timetable for charges in Trump inquiry. Now, it seems like we're not getting it this week. It would be very odd for one of them to drop on a Friday. But we could have Trump announce an indictment for next week today or this weekend. Perhaps Trump has always announced his own indictments, and I expect that we will see that for this as well. And as predicted back in May, it looks like the August timetable is still on track. We got news this week about what her approach might be on these new charges. This is from CNN on Tuesday. Fulton County District Attorney is likely to present her case against Trump to grand jury next week. 
The Atlanta area district attorney investigating former President Donald Trump and his allies has been lining up witnesses to appear before a grand jury in order to craft a narrative around how Donald Trump and his supporters tried to reverse the results of the 2020 presidential election in the Peach State, according to people familiar with the matter. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis is expected to spend two days presenting her case before a grand jury next week. Willis could seek several indictments as she eyes a sweeping racketeering case that could cast Trump and several of his associates as operating as a criminal enterprise in their endeavors to upend Georgia's election results. If Willis proceeds with racketeering charges, quote, I think she is going to tell a story, said Georgia State law professor Clark D. Cunningham. The story of how one person at the top, the former president, really marshaled an army of people to accomplish his goal, which was to stay in power through any means. So the idea here is that Donald Trump's efforts to get the results of the stolen election of 2020 investigated and overturned actually represent Donald Trump organizing and then leading a criminal enterprise. He put together an organization designed to keep him in power through committing a series of crimes like the ones outlined by special counsel Jack Smith in the J6 election fraud indictment. This one, of course, being specific to Georgia, where Donald Trump had that phone call that was leaked. The very short version went out to the wide public. You could hear the entire version. The New York Times published it. It wasn't hard to find, but no one bothered to listen to the whole thing because the whole thing, the whole call tells a much different story than the one the news has presented and the one that most Trump haters, including those in the GOP establishment and elite have listened to. They avoid the whole call because the whole call says the things that prove Donald Trump is not guilty of anything and that he was just doing his job as a responsible president to make sure that our elections are actually free and fair, safe and secure, and that the reported results accurately reflect the will and intent of the voters. They took a little clip out of that call and they said, hey, everybody, this is actually Donald Trump trying to get Georgia attorneys and secretaries of state to overturn the results of the election. He's asking them to cheat on this phone call. And of course, that's not what happened at all. Donald Trump presented a variety of election fraud issues, a few different baskets of fraudulent votes that could easily be targeted and easily overcome the reported difference between Trump and Biden in Georgia. He basically said there are all these varieties of election fraud. Just choose one. Find me 11,800 votes and let's get this thing dealt with. That wasn't Donald Trump being president and making sure that our election system was functioning properly and our country wasn't being usurped. That was Donald Trump organizing his vast criminal enterprise. Further down in the article, Willis launched her investigation into Trump in early 2021, soon after he called Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and pressured the Republican to, quote, find the votes necessary for Trump to win the state of Georgia. At a campaign event Tuesday, Trump continued to insist it was a perfect phone call. Her investigation has steadily expanded and Willis has been weighing racketeering charges in the Trump case. 
RICO, the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, is a statute the district attorney has spoken fondly of and used in unorthodox ways to bring charges against teachers as well as musicians in the Atlanta area. This is the statute that Rudy Giuliani used to take down the five families in New York. And now he finds himself as a target of this RICO investigation. Isn't it incredible that CNN would describe Willis's use of RICO as unorthodox? Well, what does that mean? Does that mean coming up with novel legal theories? Does that mean creating new laws so that someone can be prosecuted beyond the statute of limitations? Does it mean ignoring completely laws that, if followed, would show the crime Trump's being accused of wasn't a crime at all? In the case of the Presidential Records Act, just ignored completely, pursued under the Espionage Act. Would it include trying Donald Trump for things the regime itself is guilty of? Don't worry, everybody. It is not a two-tiered system of justice. It is just a bit unorthodox. Now, let's go back a year. This is August 2nd, 2022 from Business Insider. The Fulton County DA's experience prosecuting teachers with a crime typically used against the mafia offers clues to how she may charge Trump. So they have been setting up this racketeering idea for a long time. The Georgia prosecutor pursuing one of the most high stakes investigations in U.S. history built her career by successfully using racketeering charges typically employed against organized crime to convict Atlanta public school teachers for conspiring to alter student test scores. Those RICO cases and a key hire of a racketeering law expert to her staff offer a window into how experts believe she is likely to build any criminal case against Donald Trump and his allies in connection with efforts to overturn the state's 2020 presidential election result. Willis has hired a Georgia-based lawyer who wrote a national guide on RICO prosecutions, and legal experts familiar with state law believe racketeering charges may be her best avenue to convict Trump. And again, it's worth noticing how remarkable it is we are being told it is somehow a good thing for the government to get this conviction. The goal is not justice. The goal is conviction. All of it is justified because Trump is bad. Willis is ramping up her 17-month investigation into Trump and whether he or his associates tried to interfere in the Georgia 2020 elections. Her probe has expanded to include looking into members of Trump's inner circle and examining an alleged scheme to send a fake slate of electors to Georgia's state capital in Atlanta in an attempt to overturn the election result. That's not even a crime. Further down, they get into the Atlanta teacher case. In 2011, a Georgia state investigation concluded that dozens of educators had falsified standardized test results. The alleged cheating was believed to date back as far as 2001, according to state investigators. About 180 teachers and administrators were initially implicated in the scandal. In 2013, a grand jury indicted 35 Atlanta public school educators and administrators on racketeering charges. 
Between 2005 and 2009, these individuals illegally altered and falsely certified students' test answers, the indictment alleged. On RICO, they write, this kind of crime is usually associated with criminal mobs or gang organizations, but it can also apply to an individual or group of individuals who conspire to carry out crimes. Under Georgia's Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, it is a crime for an individual to commit a pattern of criminal conduct or intimidate another individual to commit any crime. Typically, prosecutors use RICO laws to help them make a broader case against an individual on the series of crimes they have committed. And Georgia law also allows prosecutors to bring RICO charges, even if the crimes are not able to be indicted separately according to a report by the Brookings Institute. In the case of the Atlanta school teachers, Willis argued that these teachers conspired to change the answers on their students' standardized test scores to have more favorable test results in their 50,000-student school district. Willis had students, parents, and teachers testify before the jury on the high-pressure environment that former superintendent Beverly Hall created around test results. She also had former school teachers and staff who worked alongside of the defendants testify against them and explain how some of these defendants conspired to cheat. Willis presented evidence that some of the teachers on trial gave students answers to their standardized tests and how other former Atlanta public school executives tried to cover up the cheating. They note that Willis initially opposed charging the teachers under the racketeering statute. But then Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard ultimately decided to pursue those charges. Willis's prosecutions on racketeering grounds would prove successful and make her career. In 2015, 11 of the 12 school educators were convicted on racketeering charges. One of the defendants passed away while awaiting trial. So apparently justice was well served. Now I've discussed many times how my friend Kyle better known as Just Human, proposed last year in the days following the Mar-a-Lago raid that perhaps what we were seeing was a template that would be that we would see in the future. And applying that principle, we can now see how all of this would be turned around and used against the criminal and corrupt members of the regime. And that's what we have here again in this instance. Throughout each one of these instances of the two-tiered system of justice being shown, being exposed to us, we see not only what the government is capable of, but we also learn about these types of charges in particular, and we debate these types of charges and how they should be used. And all of that is going to matter in the future when it is turned around back on them. That's what we're being shown right now, and I believe that's going to apply for this racketeering idea too. I've talked about this fairly extensively on different shows here and there. I'm not sure I've ever gone into it at too great a length on this show. But what I think is happening with the Durham investigation and with some of these other issues is that these represent nodes in this much larger RICO pursuit, potentially maybe even organized by Rudy Giuliani. That would be an incredible story element. I don't know if we will ever see that, but I think it would be absolutely genius. Rudy would become a legend even beyond the legend he already is. But if you think about the John Durham investigation representing just one little node of this much larger racketeering picture, then what Durham did was get all of the evidence from that node onto the record. 
It was fully investigated. All the evidence is there. They've gone through these trials, producing more evidence. The only indictments were about relatively low level people, but that gave them the opportunity to pursue all the evidence related to those individuals. And it was some opportunity for that evidence to be presented to the broader American public. Durham himself did not go after and take down all of the deep state. We weren't going to see a series of indictments that then would play out in the courts year after year after year with all the obstruction, all the confusion. Although people at the highest levels of the government in the regime are implicated in what Durham investigated and discovered, it's hard to imagine any route that he could have taken to get to those people at the highest level without it being years and years from now, decades. How do you work your way all the way up to a Hillary Clinton or a Barack Obama? How do you work your way up to investigating corrupt members of the regime in our law enforcement and intelligence communities? All of that seemed idealistic and like what must happen just to serve justice, but maybe it was not realistic and maybe it is not what Durham was tasked with. I believe that Durham was tasked with getting all of this information onto the record, leading to some public disclosure and exposure, some public understanding, and then his little node would be closed. That part of the RICO puzzle would then be set into place. And who knows how many of these nodes there are? There's probably quite a few, and you would want to have all of those laid out so that you can present the big picture at one time, go through that RICO trial, and then simultaneously take down everyone. Now, obviously, I have no way to know that that's what's happening, but that seems to be the picture that's emerging. And you might say that I'm being idealistic. This isn't going to happen. This is just false hope. But I don't think so. I think it's exactly what we're seeing. And I think that that's why we're getting this display of the bad version of Rico from Fonnie Willis. Imagine how much we and by we, I mean us and the general public will learn about Rico throughout this process. And that needs to happen. People need to consider the various elements. They need to debate these things. Which parts of the law represent justice? What are the mechanics of something like this? What is the potential of this sort of prosecution? People will understand that in advance so that it can be used to pursue the regime. Because without this kind of introduction to RICO, people wouldn't be able to understand the graduate level courses. We are getting taught about all these things with Trump as the target so that we understand them later when they are applied in reverse. Now, there are those out there making the pro-regime argument, claiming that Trump really is guilty of all of this stuff and whatever must happen is necessary because Trump is so evil, such a criminal, so dangerous that all of this is legitimate and justifiable. This is Jonah Goldberg, self-described conservative on CNN, and he's addressing a different subject but I promise I'll make it make sense afterward. Um, but I, I just also think that we were dealing with a time where there were a lot of people, there was a, there was a lot of cheering and, and self-congratulation about the rise of small donors a decade ago. And now small donors are actually one of the biggest problems for democracy, for the GOP, because um, small donor, large donors actually have a strategic view about moderation, who can win, who can't. Small donors really are just venting their spleen with yep. their credit card 
and um, and they lock candidates into positions that can hurt them in a general election. So what Jonah Goldberg is saying is that it's bad for democracy. It's a threat to democracy that normal people are donating to these political campaigns because then the candidates end up following what the people want, whereas the big donors, they have all that money. They're going to take that money and direct it in much smarter and more efficient ways because they are sophisticated enough to know what the candidates should be doing, what policies they should be supporting in order to, quote unquote, win elections. What we need to do is make sure that the people aren't involved in the process and that the system is allowed to protect itself because what we must treasure beyond anything else is that system. And that system goes under the name of our democracy. We must, in fact, totally destroy democracy in order to save our democracy. The system must be preserved and therefore we need to centralize power at the top of that system so the system can protect itself. Otherwise, these threats that emerge like Donald Trump and all of his MAGA supporters, they might actually go out and use the law and use democracy to pursue their needs rather than the needs of the system. And once again, this is kind of an indirect admission that they know they don't represent a majority that calls their legitimacy into question immediately. This is why they want the system to take down Donald Trump. It is all this same mindset. That system of power must be preserved because these people exist in that system of power. They serve that system of power. They accept the incentive and punishment structure. That is how they profit. This is what they have always known. It has to remain in place and it has to remove any threat. It is all a part of the same ideology. The two-tiered system of justice exists to preserve the power in the system. And the threat to that system is what makes the two-tiered system necessary. They will make crimes out of non-crimes. They will create new laws to do it if they have to. They will come up with novel legal theories. They will ignore some laws while misapplying other ones. They will prosecute others for the things they themselves do. And they will take unorthodox approaches in order to ensure the desired outcome of the system protecting itself. And to top it all off, they don't want you to know anything about it. This is from Wednesday in the New York Times. Why televising the Trump trial is a bad idea. This is an op-ed by Nick Ackerman. Mr. Ackerman, the Times notes, was an assistant special Watergate prosecutor and an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. As the indictments against former President Donald Trump multiply, TV and print media commentators, as well as members of Congress, have called for cameras in the courtroom. They claim that broadcasting the trials will increase the public's understanding of the charges and the evidence against Mr. Trump, and that it is the only way there can be full, quote unquote, transparency. Even Mr. Trump's lawyer, John Loro, says he personally wants the American public to see what kind of prosecution is going on. But the arguments in favor of broadcasting the trials do not give enough weight to the dangers that could pose to trial witnesses and jurors or the potential to undermine the integrity of the trial processes themselves. 
As an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, I tried a number of mafia and organized crime cases. It was difficult, if not impossible, to convince ordinary citizens to testify in such cases because they were all fearful of physical retaliation. Even armed with subpoena power, I was reluctant to force people to testify, not only because of the real danger that existed, but also because of the impact that fear would have on their testimony before the jury. The Trump trials are no different. The judge who presided over the E. Jean Carroll civil, not criminal, rape trial, Lewis Kaplan, explicitly recognized the danger to the jury of being harassed and targeted by Trump partisans and ruled that the names of the jurors not be publicly disclosed. If jurors' identities in this case were disclosed, there would be a strong likelihood of unwanted media attention to the jurors, influence attempts, and or of harassment or worse, of jurors by supporters of Mr. Trump, Judge Kaplan found on March 23rd. In reaching that decision, the judge referred to reports of Mr. Trump's previous violent rhetoric. Now, all of that is ridiculous, of course, but we don't have to rehash that. Trump supporters clearly aren't the violent ones, and Trump's words are not inspiring violence and never have. So let's move forward. The concern is the same for witnesses in the Trump criminal prosecutions. If there was any doubt that Judge Kaplan's reason for protecting the safety of jurors applies equally to trial witnesses, it was obliterated last week when Mr. Trump threatened on social media, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. So you see that totally violent. And now because they've made that case about that specific truth social message, they can apply it to absolutely everything. And of course they will. It is one thing to testify in a public courtroom. It is a whole different level of public exposure to testify before the entire world on television. A witness who is named and pictured on television becomes a sitting duck for any Trump partisan intent on seeking retribution. A major lesson from the O.J. Simpson murder trial, which gripped the nation when it was broadcast starting in 1995, is how the impact of television can undermine a trial when the judge, the lawyers, the defendant and the witnesses play to the viewing audience as they did then. This turned a grave murder trial with Mr. Simpson's guilt or innocence hanging in the balance into daily entertainment. And it's a bit confusing about what case he's making here. Is he saying justice was not done? And are we to believe that justice was not done because of the presence of television cameras? I mean, maybe there's a great argument for that, but it's an awfully bold claim. Mr. Trump likely wants cameras in the courtrooms precisely for that reason. His successes or failures as a president will likely always be debated, but almost everyone agrees that he excels at creating reality TV. No matter how experienced a judge is in controlling the courtroom, Mr. Trump could, through gestures or well-timed outbursts, try to use the broadcast to sway public opinion and, in the process, undermine the trial's solemnity. It's a very solemn occasion. We're prosecuting this president on trumped-up charges but it's a very solemn event. We don't want to have to do this. We're just doing it because, well, you know, what else are we going to do? Win legitimate elections? Come on. And once again, of course, as always, you have to reaffirm the central narrative about Donald Trump's personality. He is reckless and careless with his words. He's a narcissist, always looking out for his own advantage in the short term. No forethought to the long term, to right and wrong. He's going to destroy the solemnity of the trial through his outbursts because he cannot control himself. You have to actually believe all of that 
for any of this to make sense. But all of the uniparty left and uniparty right standard issue villagers out there will believe all of this because this is what they actually think about Donald Trump. They think that the television and the news and all of their dumbest friends are right about Trump when it comes to this. Sure, they'll lie about absolutely everything else, but they won't lie about election fraud and they won't lie about Donald Trump's personality. Concerns about witness intimidation and safety in this case certainly extend to potential TV coverage. Broadcasting trials is sometimes acceptable, but in this instance, because of concerns about protecting witnesses and jurors, shots and angles would almost certainly not include their faces nor jurors' reactions to the evidence. But they are critical elements of understanding witness credibility and impact on a jury. So sometimes it's good and necessary to broadcast trials, but in this instance, it's just too dangerous And even if you were to broadcast it without showing their faces, well, then you're just ruining the whole thing because it's really important to see their faces and their reactions. And hey, there are too many problems with that logic to even count, but these are the smartest people. So I'm probably just too dumb to understand. Judges have the power to enforce decorum in their courtrooms. A criminal defendant who defies the formalities of the courtroom risks being held in contempt and being fined or immediately incarcerated. Unfortunately, the threat of contempt will not restrain Mr. Trump, who has already personally and publicly issued verbal attacks against Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg and the judge presiding over the New York prosecution, as well as special counsel Jack Smith. So he has issued verbal attacks, and somehow these men have weathered it. They are still standing. They're still alive on this planet today, even after... Donald Trump's vicious verbal attacks. But the fact that he has said mean things about people involved in these unjust prosecutions means that he would not care about being held in contempt of court for making outbursts and trying to disrupt the trial. Again, that makes absolutely no sense. He's stating his opinion about how the legal system is operating on social media. And because of that, we are to believe that also means he wouldn't care about being held in contempt of court while facing federal criminal charges. You can only believe this if you already think that Donald Trump is all of those bad things. The entire justification for this op-ed so far rests on orange man bad. Mr. Trump's contemptuous behavior would likely have landed any other defendant in jail, but it is highly unlikely that any judge will take such a step with the former president. So you see, this time, the two-tiered system of justice is operating to help Donald Trump. His status as former president means he's not getting treated like other Americans. So interesting. To ensure greater transparency, the media can do more to, among other things, regularly rely on commentary from seasoned criminal trial lawyers who actually attend the trials and can provide in-depth, practical legal analysis. So the one saving grace of all of this is that the television can show you all of their very serious attorneys to explain it to all the child brains. So you don't actually need to watch the trial. You just listen to the people on TV. It's basically the same thing you're supposed to do in the event 
of a nuclear weapons attack. You go inside, you stay inside, you do the laundry and you watch television. That's all you need to do. That's also going to be for the record, all you need to do if another pandemic comes along. For example, in the E. Jean Carroll case, the press extensively reported on the cross-examination of Ms. Carroll by Mr. Trump's lawyer and the testimony he elicited from her. Far less commented on was the classic rookie mistake by Mr. Trump's lawyer of enhancing Ms. Carroll's credibility with an unnecessarily lengthy cross-examination, which permitted her to explain facts she could not include in her direct testimony. So there we have it again, Trump's incompetent lawyers losing the case for Donald Trump. It's crazy because you would think that a case about sexual assault might be decided on the evidence and not, you know, lawyer mistakes. Televising the Trump trials is no substitute for contemporaneous expert legal reporting and analysis to provide the public with real transparency. And that is about as clear an admission as you will ever find. It even beats Jonah Goldberg. Televising the Trump trials is no substitute for contemporaneous expert legal reporting and analysis to provide the public with real transparency. That is absolutely astounding. The argument is that it is actually more transparent to have the people on CNN and MSNBC tell you what's happening in the courtroom rather than you watching it yourself. Because of course, the general public cannot be trusted to understand what they're saying. Therefore, they need authoritative sources translating reality in real time so that they can understand it. If you just let people see the trial and see the evidence and see the arguments, well, they're going to realize that Donald Trump's not guilty. And that would be terrible. That would defeat the entire effort. He's just basically saying it at this point. And so in order to prevent that, we need to make sure no one sees it. Legal analysts on cable news and in these very astute, very serious news outlets will tell us what's happening. Don't worry. They're going to give us the full and accurate story. No spin whatsoever, because this is such a serious situation. They would never try to spin a situation this serious. What kind of people do you think they are? They're not some dirty MAGA supporters. They are members of our most trusted news sources representing our most trusted profession, lawyers. Of course, they're going to give us the straight truth the entire time, and they're going to give it to us in a way that we can properly understand it. And does properly understand it mean understanding the laws and the evidence and the arguments no, it means coming to the proper conclusions. We will never reach those conclusions on our own, which is why it's necessary to make sure we don't see it and instead just have the conclusions given to us. Once they give us those conclusions, they will argue about how right the conclusions are and how we should feel about the conclusions. And as we watch that argument, we will think, well, the conclusion is the certainty. That's the real true part. And we have to figure out where we stand relative 
to those conclusions. Are they morally right? Are they morally wrong? Well, that's going to be up to us. We control how we feel about these things. Thank goodness they have already given us all of the reality, and then we can decide for ourselves. That's true freedom. The people simply cannot be trusted with anything this important. They might misunderstand it, and at that point, the threat to the regime might grow. This is all an exercise to take the threats to the regime away. We are beginning to see the two-tiered system of justice on full display. It's going to keep going this direction until the critical mass is reached and people wake up. We're going to get the series of reruns until everyone understands. The two-tiered system of justice didn't just start, but we were told that occasionally mistakes were made. There were just isolated incidents that were actually problematic where justice wasn't served by our system. But now we're seeing it all and it's pretty bleak. We're past the point where they can hide it. We're even maybe past the point where they're denying it. We are to the point where everyone can see this system has been turned on its head and we have people like Jonah Goldberg and Nick Ackerman arguing that the two-tiered system is necessary in order to protect that system itself from the people who cannot ever be trusted with power. And all of that might seem absolutely antithetical to every principle of our founding, but we only think that because we're too stupid to know better, which is why we need to leave the thinking to all of them. I will be back, I think, tomorrow, Saturday. Same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? 
elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofi. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!